Hi, this is Mark Dombroff, and I'm sitting here with my co-host, Mark McKinnon, and this is the inaugural broadcast of Plainly Spoken, the podcast. Hopefully that those of you who are listening to this podcast are subscribers to Plainly Spoken, the blog, and we very much hope that you enjoy the podcast as well, along with our symposium series webinar programs that we put on regularly, uh, as well as our podcast and uh, our blog. Uh, we really aim to bring to you the most topical information in perhaps an incisive and, and uh, certainly very expeditious fashion. Uh, as I said, this is the inaugural broadcast and it joins our webinars and our symposium, which I'll talk about in a minute as one of the vehicles for keeping in touch with all of you. And we're always open to uh, suggestions and ideas. You can contact uh, either Mark or myself. Our contact information is available through our blog. And we look forward to hearing from you if you've got any suggestions. Uh, our plan is to, I guess the phrase is drop a new podcast uh, or publish a new podcast. Uh, or broadcast a new podcast every week, uh, uh, 10 days to two weeks probably. Um, but we'll keep you advised as we go along. Uh, we want to talk about two subjects today, Mark. One is uh, to give everybody an update on the 2020 Aviation Symposium. And the other is to talk about the newest uh, notice of proposed rulemaking of of significance from the FAA, our friends over at the FAA at 800 Independence Avenue. Uh, let's talk first about the symposium. This is our 14th year uh, of the Aviation Symposium, and I sort of look back at when we started the symposium 14 years ago, just about 14 years ago in I guess about three weeks. Um, we were planning to have it in our conference room. Our offices, while not in the same building here in Virginia, in Tyson's Corner, uh, we're really, as I look out the window, uh, uh, not that far away from where we are. Uh, and we were hoping to have it in the conference room. We figured it was large enough. We could probably see 20, 25 if we squeezed. Uh, it turned out we had about 45 people registered, and we actually couldn't have it in the conference room. We had to go to a hotel and get a small meeting room. Well, over the years, the symposium has grown, and we're not in a small meeting room anymore. We've, as many of you know, we've moved to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel here in McLean, Virginia, Tyson's Corner, Virginia. Uh, we have anywhere in the range of three to 500 uh, people attending our symposium. The 2020 symposium is February 4th through 6th. Our networking, our, I'm sorry, our welcome cocktail party is the evening of February 4th. We have a full program on Wednesday, February 5th, and half a day program on Thursday, February 6th. As always, there's absolutely no charge for the symposium, and then the best news is we feed you as well. Um, if you haven't registered for the symposium, you can go to our blog, and I haven't given the contact information for the blog yet, the address, but it's www dot plainly and that's p l a n e hyphen l y spoken dot fox rothschild dot com i'll give it again www dot plainly p l a n e hyphen l y spoken dot fox rothschild dot com 
and there's uh, a a, uh, a blog post there that will not only allow you to download our symposium app uh, that's filled with all sorts of resources and information including our emergency response manual which is almost 400 pages uh, but you also get uh, access to all of our webinars is probably at least 25 or 30 webinars available both the PowerPoints as well as the audio recordings uh, and a host of other information uh, the agenda for the symposium, plus you can register uh, by going to the blog. So we really do look forward to seeing you on uh, February 4th and uh, hopefully you'll be listening to this before February 4th. I, I hope that we're uh, good enough to be able to get it up and running. In any event, let's uh, turn to the uh, second subject and that's the FAA's Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. I think it was on, on New Year's Eve. No, yeah, that was when it was published in the Federal Register. Uh, on, yeah. on December 31st, 2019, uh, the FAA published was probably one of the largest, uh, just in terms of sheer number of pages, notices of proposed rulemakings, uh, dealing with the remote identification of drones. Um, and the 60-day comment period opened up, and there's already, I think uh, Mark can give you the details, there's already several thousand comments and we're really at the front end, if you will, of the uh, comment period. Um, it really represents, uh, perhaps apart from maybe even exceeding Part 107, uh, the most dramatic rulemaking that the FAA has undertaken in the context of drones because it is a predicate to virtually everything else moving forward from a regulatory perspective. Mark? Yeah, that's right. And uh, as you mentioned, with the, uh, the, this is something that really has attracted a huge amount of attention already uh, among the drone-using public, whether it's hobbyists or people who fly commercially. Uh, we're already up to over 5,000 comments today. Oh my gosh. And so that's, they're averaging pretty steadily about 500 comments every day. So, and, and I know there already is talk about some people in the industry trying to get FAA to extend the comment period another 30 days. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if by the time we're done there's 50,000 or more comments. And uh, the FAA's obligation to go through those comments is what? Yeah, that's the thing under the, uh, the Administrative Procedures Act, they actually have to review every single comment um, and then they have to do an analysis. And they don't necessarily analyze each one, but they'll take them and they'll kind of put them in you know, they'll group them by comments with people who are in favor of the manufacturing requirements or people who are against the manufacturing requirements or people who are in favor of the registration requirements. And they'll kind of get, create a synthesis of that. And then when the final rule comes out, whether they change the rule or not, they'll have to write a summary of the comments and their reasoning for what it is they're doing in response to the comments, whether they're going to ignore the comments and leave the rule as it is, or whether they're going to make a change to the comments. What, what do you think, by the way, the likelihood is of there being substantial changes to the proposed rule that the FAA has published? Um, as it may be reflected in the final rule? I think it's very unlikely because, I mean, they've already, this rulemaking, Congress wanted this rulemaking out 18 months ago, so it's already 18 months behind schedule. Um, and also, I would note that in, in the final stretch before the rule get, came out, it was at OIRA, and they had a number of public hearings at OIRA. What's OIRA? OIRA is the Office of Information... 
research uh, or something. <laughs> it's, it's one of those many government alphabet uh, acronyms. Right. So it's the, it's the last, they do the last review before the notice of propo proposed rulemaking It's OMB, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, part of right. The Office of Management and Budget, which is part of the White House. Right. And, and based on the comments they get from these public hearings and the comments they get from other governmental agencies, they can recommend that... Uh, the FAA makes substantial changes to it, um, and, and in fact, you know, there have been times in the past, uh, for example, when the flight over people rule first went to OIRA, the, the rule actually got pulled based on the comments and you know, went back to the drawing board for another year or more. Um, but this time, after the last meeting was over, it was, the FAA published it in nine days, which means that essentially nothing that came out of the comments changed uh, anybody's opinion about the merits of the rule. And, and if if the FAA does uh, make some sort of changes, do they have to send it back to the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, OIRA? Yeah, normally they would. I have to say, I, <laughs> I cheated on that one, and I, I Googled it as I sat here on my smartphone. Yeah, and they would normally. So, And it's one of those things, you know, I think there, there definitely could be changes, because I think uh, the one thing we all remember when Part 107, the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, came out, when the final rule came out, they actually did make some changes, and some of those changes did really improve the rule. The, the, the entire system of waivers was something that was added after the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, and that really went a long way towards making 107 more flexible, and I think that was in part because they got some good comments about the need to, uh, you know, have the rule in such a way that they could, could the FAA could continue to learn by allowing people to do, you know, advanced operations under controlled circumstances, so they could build up data to do the more advanced rulemaking. It strikes me that the best uh, example, best reason that uh, there is to have remote identification of drones, uh, which would be electronic identification right. either through the internet uh, or through cell signals. Uh, is the recent uh, sighting of multiple drones over in Nebraska on Colorado where the Air Force has said it's not them, the FAA says we don't know what it is, and all the speculation um, and, and uh, uh, stories about it have continued. Uh, nobody's taking credit for it. If we had the remote identification of drones, um, it's quite likely that certainly if it was a drone covered by the remote identification dr which rule, which is pretty much most drones. Yeah, it's anything that's going to be over 8.8 .8 ounces. It's going to fall under the rule, okay. basically. So we, there's a good chance we would know whose drones they are we, by tracing back right. not only the drone but the operator. Right, and law enforcement, in theory, you know, they could they could query almost instantly when they get a report of where these drones are. And uh, because the remote ID system is tied into the registration system, they would have, you know, the name and address of the person who owned the drone as well as their phone number because that's going to be part of the registration requirements going forward. So, uh, I mean, they would, that would, the mystery would be solved relatively quickly. Now, how, how does uh, the drone, the new proposed rule, impact the hobby and the, the uh, recreational industry, which has, at least at the outset certainly, had protection from Congress um, in, the, in what was known as Section 336 of not the last FAA authorization but the prior right. FAA authorization where the Congress said that the uh, FAA may not make any rules affecting that segment of the drone right. universe. And, and uh, in 2019, uh, the 2018 yeah. authorization, thank you for 
correcting me, and I apologize, we have sirens going by <laughs> outside, although I assure you they're not here for Mark and I. Um, uh, in, in 2018, for the authorization, uh, the FAA authorization, the Congress basically rescinded or yeah. eliminated that special treatment of the recreational and hobbyist drone world. So how does this new notice of proposed rulemaking affect that world? Yeah, it really does. It makes, it makes a huge difference because uh, up until now, both for hobbyists and for commercial entities, you know, the FAA's position was they weren't going to set equipment standards, they weren't going to have design standards of any type for unmanned aircraft, certainly not for hobbyists. And uh, this, you know, in, this puts a, a fairly rigorous design standard that affects all unmanned aircraft, including hobby aircraft that are going to be over 8.8 ounces. And so it's, it's a real change in philosophy. Instead of the hands-off, we'll let industry guide the development of the technology. They're going to say, we have certain, at least when it comes to this technology, we have certain standards. And we don't care how you meet it, but you have to meet those standards. Well, I, I certainly view this rule as uh, essentially the turning point, if you will, disposing of any question, any issue with respect to whether drones or airplanes. This, uh, I, I think I have certainly uh, indicated to people that if you want to know what the drone world is going to look like five years, ten years from now, I, I don't think, it, I used to say ten years, but it's not <laughs> ten years, uh, five years from now, look at the world of aviation as it currently exists. Uh, Airplanes have to have transponders on them and broadcast their position. Uh, certainly commercial aircraft do operating in, in controlled airspace. Uh, aircraft have to be certified. Pilots have to uh, be more than just operators. They have to demonstrate proficiency. They have to go through checks on a periodic basis. Training programs have to be approved. Maintenance programs have to be approved. Safety programs have to be approved. Um, it strikes me that this is the uh, uh, full Monty in the context of the drone world, and this is the first real indication that the FAA is taking control of the entire universe of drones. Yeah, and I think I think really what it what it signals is up until now, you know, even though the the ultimate goal has been integration of drones into the national airspace system, it really has been set up that the approach has been to accommodate drones. In other words, we're going to carve out pieces of airspace, we're going to keep things simple, we're going to keep things limited. And as we finally move away from that model into full integration, where you're going to have beyond visual line of sight operations, you know, all these other advanced technologies, you know, are going to finally be allowed to be used in public. Uh, that integration requires, you know, the FAA to have a much greater involvement in it. And the, the FAA has in fact indicated that uh, the remote identification rule is a predicate to things like beyond visual line of sight and so forth. So this industry really uh, can't move forward, at least from the perspective of the regulations, which everybody has sort of criticized the regulations as holding it back. Uh, this industry can't move forward with the kinds of things that drones are capable fully of doing until there's a remote identification rule. Right, and even beyond just the technological uh, uh, you know, reasons for having remote identification, you know, when you're talking about uh, you know, unmanned traffic management and things like that in the future, you have the idea that the public isn't going to embrace, and more importantly law enforcement, isn't going to embrace having drones flying everywhere if we're just gonna have this idea that, well, we just won't know who's flying where and who's doing what. So, you know, the regulations are driven not just by technology, but also by uh, at least a level of regulation that makes the public comfortable with the widespread use of the technology. 
Well, I, I know, and I didn't mention it, but one of the uh, webinars that's available on the app uh, and uh, on through Plainly Spoken, the blog, uh, is the one we did on January 8th, where we spent 90 minutes sort of dissecting, um, and I'm not sure this is appropriate, a 300-page <laughs> notice of proposed rulemaking, but I think we did a pretty good job, and there's a whole PowerPoint uh, set on, on uh, available there, as well as an audio recording of that webinar. So uh, if any of you want to dive into this even deeper, um, I recommend you go to our uh, blog, plainlyspoken.foxrothschild.com, uh, go to the resources uh, tab, uh, or just scroll down once you get to Plainly Spoken. Um, and by the way, the app is available uh, on the app stores for whatever smartphone you have. Um, let me wrap this up just by going back to our symposium on February 4th through 6th, um, just to sort of give you some highlights. Uh, keynote comments will be delivered by the chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board. Some of the subjects we're going to cover because we stay very topical and those of you who haven't been there, we have no talking heads and no papers. They're moderated panels. We have a panel on uh, the lessons to be learned so far from the Lion Air and Ethiopian Airlines accidents. The, uh, obviously, they involve the MAX aircraft, which seems to be a never-ending saga. Um, we have our lunchtime speaker on Wednesday the 5th, uh, lunchtime conversation is with Leland Vittert, a Fox News anchor, talking about the 24-7 news cycle and the coverage of aviation. And there's certainly been a lot of aviation in the media uh, in the past, uh, well, I, I could say in the past year, um, but uh, certainly in the past few weeks. Uh, we have our FAA and TSB DOT panel, in which current and former officials from various government agencies talk about the regulatory universe. Uh, we'll be talking about emotional support animals, service animals, disruptive passengers. We'll be talking about the Safety Act, and if you don't know what the Safety Act is, that's the best reason perhaps I can give you for attending the symposium. Um, we'll be talking about how to make uh, uh, and have effective responses to emergencies and crises when you have limits on your resources. Not every airline is a major airline. Not every operator has unlimited resources. So we think it's a program that you'll enjoy. It's very interactive. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this inaugural blog, and we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you.